Welcome to The Sword and the Trowel, a podcast of Founders Ministries. Founders Ministries exists for the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of churches. Um, I'm Jared Longshore. And I'm Tom Askell. And we are grateful uh, that you listen to The Sword and the Trowel. We want to talk a little bit today about intersectionality. This is a word that we're hearing more and more about and uh, seems to be an important concept for us to think about and understand, given realities that are going on in the evangelical world today. This uh, term and idea has been put forward by a woman named Kimberly Crenshaw, and it is uh, a study, a way of considering social identities and a way of determining uh oppression and discrimination. So a lot of people are using it, but I don't think people are terribly clear even with the term and then what we're to think about it. So I'll take my best stab at defining it right now because I heard somebody do it well recently and then Tom, you brush up my definition. But Crenshaw put forward um, the idea of one being oppressed based on a particular identity and consider that a road. Well, if you have another identity, uh, that would be a second road crossing that first road, which would be an intersection. So it's like a place where you could really have an opportunity to get hit by a car. You're really on hard times. Those identities are things like your skin color or your sex or your uh, sexual orientation. So if you are black rather than white, that's a road. And if you are a woman rather than a man, that's another road, because both of those are identities in which you're going to be oppressed in our society, and they intersect. So you have two intersections. Imagine a road running uh, north to south and one running east to west, and you have two of those. Well, if you happen to be, in addition to those two identities of oppression, um, a homosexual, uh, a lesbian, because you're a woman, Well, that's a third road. So now you have three roads intersecting there, and you have great opportunity to get hit by a car and be oppressed. So north, south, east, west, northeast, southwest. Southwest. Yeah, you can see how this gets complex. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, if you are native-born, that is um, a privilege. And if you're not native-born, that's another status of oppression. So if you're not native-born, you got a fourth road running across that intersection. you got a whole lot of intersections. If you're able-bodied, that's a strike against you. But if you're disabled, then you have another road. That's right. So here's you hear a number of the social identities, and there's more that even more that people have charted out. But as you think about these, the the argument is it's clear to all that in this society we know which of these two identities, white, black, male, female, straight, homosexual, are uh, identities in which you're going to be oppressed or identities in which you're going to be privileged. And the more intersections there are, the more oppressed you are, and therefore the more um, social restructuring we need to do so that you're not oppressed. Yeah, I think this all came about because of a court case where there was a a suit for discrimination. And if I remember right, it was black women. And the argument was that we're being discriminated not only because against not only because we're women, but because we're black women. And I think the court case may have gone against them. And then Crenshaw did her research and proposed this theory. But I I tell you, I like the way Rosaria Butterfield 
has mm-hmm. described this, and she speaks from a position of uh, study. She was a specialist in queer theory at Syracuse University before God saved her, so she was studying all of these types of issues. And she simply calls intersectionality the worldview du jour and goes on to say it's the belief that who you truly are is measured by how many victim statuses you can claim. Mm -hmm. And so if you just take it like that, okay, how many victim statuses, given the way that we talk about victimization today, how many of those can I claim? Well, then uh, that defines you and where those statuses intersect, uh, you you stack up your claims. She, She goes on to say that human dignity in a worldview of intersectionality can only accrue through the intolerance of any disagreement of any kind. Mm. So mm. that's where we are today. So some would say, <clears throat> I can hear Christian saying, hey, what's wrong with this? I mean, this, this can we learn something from this? Can we do something with this? Has it have uh, people with darker skin not been oppressed in the history of this land? Of course they have. And are there ramifications of that for today? Uh, you know, I'm not prepared to say there's not any ramifications for that today. There are. So, um, so why can't we learn from this system? The way I would respond to that, I, I want people to see that this um, system, intersectionality, comes... Uh, it is the fruit of a particular worldview. Right, right. This is important. Uh, Kimberly Crenshaw is a leading scholar of critical race theory. This right. is not um, debated. You search online, you're going to find out quickly she's associated with critical race theory, which is associated with critical theory developed by Max Horkheimer and this whole Frankfurt School movement. The, the most important thing to see is, is that uh, Horkheimer is this philosopher that denies objective truth. Hmm denies that truth is revealed to us by Almighty God. And so you're down here in society, on the ground, but you cannot appeal to any kind of objective, transcendental standard. But take take on his worldview. Take on the worldview of critical theory. But we all know things aren't right down here. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now we don't know that because it's been revealed to us from above. We just know it's not right down here. And so we need to critique it. Mm-hmm. We need to fix it. And so put your finger on the scales for those who are being oppressed. I mean, you're left with this of trying to form a solution apart from God, apart from his revealed truth. That's why this, you know, you can't say, oh, well, you know, critical race theory is a poisoned well, but we can really still use it today. No, yeah. you can't. use It comes from a godless worldview. Yeah, you will never get good fruit from a poisoned root. It just won't happen. And if we take what the Scripture says about justice and how people ought to be treated, we're not going to go wrong. So if a person is a, uh, a lesbian black woman, as you described earlier, and is assaulted, well, she deserves justice, uh, not because she's a lesbian, mm-hmm. not because she's black, not because she's a woman, but because she's assaulted. And if she's cheated by an employer, she deserves justice. Absolutely. And God's word speaks about those things. And and what seems to be happening is we're, we're hearing people start from this godless worldview of intersectionality, impose it on what is going on today, and then trying to cherry pick from scripture saying, but justice requires, justice requires, and you, you just can't have it both ways. Yeah, and I can see why this is tempting to Christians. The whole Hegelian dialect 
dialectic thing. So you got a, a thesis proposed, and then you know there's the antithesis on the other side of the road, and then there's a synthesis down the road. So we're kind of still moving towards something, and things are being made right. So when Christians notice that a thesis, whatever it is on one side of the road, is is out of bounds, it's not right. And a whole bunch of people in the world that deny God also see that, mm. and they're saying, look, we need an antithesis. We need to we need a, a strong correction to the other side of the road. Well, the world's not doing that based on revealed truth. Right. The world's not doing that out of devotion to God, out of love to God and love to man. They're not. They're, they're outside of Christ. They're enemies of God. And so Christians can go, oh, well, can't we get on board with that? what they're doing, what they're proposing. Isn't that a correction to something that needs to be corrected? And the answer is, well, yes, it, this thing needs to be corrected, but we have to correct it according to God's word. We're not mm-hmm. going to simply go ping-pong back and forth down the road and two wrongs don't make a right. There's a standard for yeah. us. And you, if you don't get the diagnosis right, you're never going to get the remedy right. For our book section today, we want to talk about a little booklet that has recently been reprinted. It's called Social Justice, How Good Intentions Undermine Justice and Gospel. It's written by E. Calvin Beisner. He is the founder and spokesman of the Cornwell Alliance for Stewardship of Creation. And he's also an author, a popular speaker. This booklet came out several years ago. I was given a copy of it, I think, maybe three years ago or so. And in light of some of the recent conversations, Cal has recently republished it. He has also put as an appendix in the new edition the statement on social justice and the gospel. So I commend this little booklet to you. It's an excellent summary of what the scripture says about justice. He looks at justice from various angles using both Old and New Testaments, describing how there are different kinds of justice in the Bible. There's commercial justice. Uh, There are um, ways that we enter into justice in voluntary relationships. He talks about qualifications for biblical justice. Uh, Sometimes we can get uh, deep in the weeds when we start trying to figure out what is required in order for something to be just. But I remember reading this booklet and uh, taking and synthesizing what Cal said, that the Bible calls us to treat people the way they deserve to be treated, which means they got to be treated proportionately. They needed to be treated equitably. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean they're treated all the same because people don't deserve to be treated all the same. If I'm a owner of an NBA basketball team, I'm not going to treat LeBron James the say, same way that I do the guy who washes the uniforms. I mean, they both deserve to be treated with respect, but one of them is important to the franchise and deserves to be paid a whole lot more than the other guy. And there's mm. nothing no, it not sounds just like about all that. Kinds of privilege, right? And if I'm the <laughs> water boy, if I'm the, I want to, I want to be center stage on the court. I want people, I want that guy to call my name so I can go out there in the dark when they have the little spotlights flashing around. Well, then all you got to do is score 28 points a game, get 11 rebounds a game, and you're in, man. It sounds like some privilege (laughs) being spread around. No, it's equity. It's equity. It's treating people equitably. What do you mean when you say equity as opposed to um, just outright equality? Yeah, well, equality is this idea that everybody gets the same thing. Everybody gets a trophy. Doesn't same, matter. same. Yeah, it doesn't matter if your team scores 50 points or your team scores zero points, you're all going to get the same trophy because we're equal here. Well, you press that idea into a corner and then like all the buildings start looking the same? Yeah. Kind of gray? Yeah, everything. Has it happened before? Uh, like, where all I the buildings know, and everybody gets the same ration of food? And 
Yeah, I think mm. it was a utopia somewhere in the 20th century. I can't <laughs> quite remember <laughs> where it where it was attempted and failed multiple times. So equality is same, same, everything the same. Uh, equity, equity would be treating people as they deserve to be treated. So well, you, who decides that? Well, Tom? there's lots of uh, bases for that. Um, Paul says in Romans 13 to pay to all what is owed them. So some people have taxes owed them. They're to be paid to them. I'm not to pay you my taxes because you're not my magistrate. I don't like this whole equitable thing. It's worked out twice now, not in my favor. <laughs> I'm not playing basketball. And now you're not paying me money. Well, you just need to get something that uh, will make you worthy of being paid. That's what I could see how people get on this whole equality train. Yeah. Yeah. Especially those that uh, aren't six foot 10 and 270 <laughs> pounds and can run four, four, five, 40 yard dash. And wants your money. <laughs> Yeah, so, but Paul says, we pay revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And as image bearers, everybody deserves to be treated respectably and honorably. But there is a difference between the honor that is to be shown you versus the honor that is to be shown um, President Trump, because he's the leading magistrate in this nation. Mm. You really, man by what standard comes in so hard, doesn't it? You can understand how when people don't uh, want the Bible as their standard, all this stuff you're saying is just going to sound... Absolutely. You're, you're so arrogant. You keep saying that, you know, everybody's do different honor and everybody's do different things. Well, who decides that? And if you're left without the Word of God, you know, you, you, you got nothing. That's right. And that's why the most important verse in the Bible is Genesis 1-1. Hmm. We get that. We start there. We remember that then we will save ourselves a lot of headaches. Well, we're continuing on in our study of God's commandments. Uh, by what standard is the question that seems to be ever before us? And we are thankful to God that he has told us how we are to live in the world. One of the... Um, questions that come up very often is, uh, are the Ten Commandments a summary of God's eternal moral law, or are they simply something that God was doing with Israel? One of the arguments for the Ten Commandments being a summary of God's eternal moral law is the fact that they all appear prior to the giving of the law at Sinai in Exodus 20. And we've come now to the Seventh Commandment where we want to demonstrate that this law was operating before Israel was there at the foot of Mount Sinai. So the Seventh Commandment is, Thou shalt not commit adultery. And Tom, where do we see that before Sinai? Well, it seems like Joseph had that law written on his heart when Potiphar's wife seduced him, tried to get him to commit adultery with her. In Genesis 39, he says, no, how can I do this? Um, my master has entrusted me with everything in his household, and he's given me everything except you. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So he wasn't just thinking about the horizontal dimensions of that act. He was thinking about the vertical dimensions. He knew that to take Potiphar's wife would have been a sin against God. He would have violated what we now know to be the seventh commandment. Since you brought that one up, maybe we could talk a little bit about Potiphar's wife seducing Joseph. Um, if Joseph would have slept with her, would he have committed adultery or would he have had some, you know, maybe some um, 
reason that it wouldn't be adultery because he was being tempted by a woman? Well, he would certainly, uh, the, the truth would be, he was tempted by a woman. He she was, was pressing him pretty Absolutely. hard. Absolutely, all that's true. But Joseph knew, because God's law was written on his heart, that he was culpable. He was responsible. He was liable. He had to say no, or else he would have sinned against his God. So he's responsible even though there was great temptation against him. Absolutely. Absolutely. We we never are allowed to use temptation as an excuse for our sin. This is big today because there is so much sexual temptation Absolutely. in 21st century America. We are rampantly sexually immoral and men are tempted all the time. I think of, of the book of Proverbs where the father's telling his son, don't go near her house. Get as far away as you can. And uh, this is a call for men to be vigilant in yeah. this battle in our day. You know, another place where we see um, the seventh commandment before Mount Sinai is in Abraham and then also in, in Isaac, but especially Abraham when he's traveling with Sarah and they come to the land of Gerar and Abimelech looks at Sarah and says, who's she? And Abraham says, that's, that's my sister. So he takes her and he's going to have her for himself until God speaks to him in a dream and says, you're a dead man if you touch this woman. And mm-hmm. then he goes to Abraham and says, hey, man, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? So even there, a man who was not a part of the promised people, God supernaturally revealed to him that to have another man's wife would have made him liable to the punishment of death. Yep, We certainly see it in Sodom and Gomorrah and the punishment that comes upon them. In Genesis chapter 19, verse 24 and 25, I remember being impressed on the internet by one guy who was uh, pro-LGBT uh, saying, you know, hey, what was what was Sodom <laughs> condemned for? And he, he, won- yeah. <laughs> he, he wanted me to say pride as is referenced in Scripture, that they are judged because of their pride. And yet, you know, the, 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 the beauty is to say, well, they were judged for their sexual immorality and the pride that attends such sexual immorality. <laughs> Uh, you know, I mean, God writes the best stories. Is it not amazing that the sexual corruption that we see in the LGBT community, that they've determined mm-hmm. that we're going to use mm-hmm. the word pride? It's mm-hmm. going to be a gay mm-hmm. pride parade. Yeah, and the Scripture links these two realities together as well. Sexual perversion and pride, this exaltation. I, I will... I will sleep with whoever I want to sleep with, and I'm not going to have God tell me right. uh, who I am. I'm not now. We've pressed it all the way, of course, to transgenderism. I'm not going to tell. I'm not going to let God tell me who I can go to sleep with. I'm not going to tell God. I'm not going to let God tell me uh, who I am. Even. Yeah, I think this area, perhaps more than any other, except the the murder uh, commandment and what we're seeing in abortion, but this commandment also uh, demonstrates how far away from a biblical view of the world we have fallen. Yeah. Here's our hope and what we want to come back to again and again as we deal with these commandments. The Lord Jesus Christ never sinned. Uh, He, uh, like Joseph, uh, fleed sin, and he was perfect, unlike Joseph, and he is our only hope. And there's not a single one of us who have not fallen into sin, so if you 
are uh, have been guilty of what Potiphar's wife is guilty of, or if you've been guilty of what they were guilty of at Sodom and Gomorrah, in any of these situations, the Lord Jesus Christ is a great Savior for great sinners. He not only forgives us of our sins, but as we repent and believe in him, he purifies us and he works in us so that we leave off our sin more and more, being transformed into his image. You have been listening to the Sword and the Trowel podcast with Jared Longshore and Tom Askell. This podcast is produced by Founders Ministries. For more information, visit www.founders.org. To hear more from the Sword and the Trowel, you can follow Founders on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or by subscribing to our email list at www.founders.org.